Today we will be reading from Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and was returning, seated on his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed through, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Good morning, my name's Tom, I'm one of the other elders here at Christchurch and it's going to be my privilege to talk us through this second half of Acts 8 this morning. Um, so why don't you make sure you've got a Bible to hand, um, settle the children if you need to do that, um, finish explaining to them what a eunuch is if you have to do that, good luck, um, and I'll pray as we start this morning. Heavenly Father, we know that all heaven rejoices when someone comes to faith in you. Um, and we're reading an account of that happening today. So please give us by your spirit hearts that are eager to rejoice with heaven at this man's conversion. Uh, and hearts that are eager to rejoice at your mission carrying on even now. And please give us hearts that are ready to be challenged where we need to be. And that are um, ready to obey your spirit where we need to do that. Amen. An Englishman, an Irishman and a Scotsman all walked into a pub. The landlord, he took one look at them and he said, sorry lads, there's no beer garden here, you'll have to come back in May. I thought about jokes like that and I know dozens of them and then I thought about our church senior staff team which occurred to me, comprises of an Englishman, an Irishman, a Scotswoman and a Welshman. So I thought I should probably stop at that because I deeply love and respect all of them. But it is funny, isn't it? I mean, not the joke, the joke was awful. But the way that those sorts of jokes play on our personal and our cultural stereotypes, our, our prejudice. You see, in essence, we know nothing about those four characters. We know the nationality of three of them. We know the occupation of one of them. And yet, that's enough for us to make a decision as to who is going to be the butt of the joke. We all know who we think is going to get ridiculed in that setup. Which actually isn't funny at all, is it? because that happens all the time in life. People are forever put down because of their 
race or religion or education or employment or sex or just about any other thing, any other difference you can have between two people. We see it in the news every day. And if we're honest, as a church, the church globally, we're not immune to this. Just this week there have been reports in the news of racism in the church in this country, of trainee ministers and trained ministers being ostracised and being victimised because of their ethnicity, which is deeply sad and troubling. And when you come to the book of Acts, you realise this should not be the case. The, the, the goal for the church, the Spirit's aim, has always to been to go and take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to make disciples of all sorts of people. And yet as well, when you read the book of Acts, you realise that actually this has always been the case. Even at this stage in Acts, we've already seen an argument around ethnicity, an accusation that one group of widows was treated differently to another group of widows because they had a different cultural background, despite them all being Jewish. We're quick to judge. And as we pick up the story today in chapter 8, actually, we're standing on a massive step in church history. The gospel at this stage has been proclaimed in, in largely Jewish backgrounds, in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria. And yes, there were difficulties there, but people have embraced the gospel. Thousands, hundreds of at a time have come to faith. But now, in Acts 8, we're standing on the verge of the next step. The gospel message, the good news about Jesus, is about to take its first fledgling steps outside of this Jewish background culture and towards the end of the world, ends of the earth. And with those steps, there comes quite an identity crisis for the church. And it, and it all circles around the question of, do you first have to become a Jew to then become a follower of Jesus? And it's a question that is going to cause a lot of heartache for the church, as well as a lot of rejoicing. It's going to cause debate, and it's going to cause disagreement. And yet before that, before the apostles really start wrestling with the implications of taking the gospel to non-Jewish people, before that, Luke first records this meeting of two men in the back of a chariot, on a dusty desert road. And neither of these men are, are big characters in the book of Acts. Philip, you'll remember from last week, he kind of guest stars in chapter 8, having been first name-dropped in chapter 6, and then he fades into the background. He only gets a one-verse cameo after this in chapter 21. The other man we know nothing more about. There is no mention of him either before or after this passage. And yet, this is the first example of an individual coming to faith in Jesus. You see, prior to this, Luke, the guy who researched and recorded this account of the early church, prior to this, he's only recorded public preaching of the gospel in the streets, in the temple, in courtrooms. Prior to this, he's only recorded people coming to Jesus en masse, thousands, hundreds at a time responding to the gospel message. But here is his first example of one-to-one -one evangelism, and it's simply two men chatting as they travel together. 
And although this is, in essence, it's a private conversation, Luke uses it to show us things that will be of massive significance for the church. He will show us that in the church, the Spirit removes all the barriers between men and God. He'll show us that in the church, in this new normal that he's creating, full fellowship is open to anyone who comes to Jesus with repentance and faith. And he'll show us that the Spirit achieves this through the church when Jesus' people talk about him. And those are things that the early church desperately needed to learn as they started to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And they're things that we need reminding of today. So let's consider what this conversation will show us. And firstly, that through the church, the Holy Spirit removes all the barriers between man and God. As you read this passage, you could be forgiven for thinking that Philip's companion is being set up like the butt of a bad joke, like the one I told at the beginning. You see, Luke gives us very limited and yet at the same time very specific information about him. We're told his nationality, he's Ethiopian. We're told his job, he's a, a banker or a treasurer of some description. And we're told, well let's face it, a, a toe-curlingly uncomfortable statement about his physicality, he is a eunuch. Now, um, by chance, the BBC podcast, Your History, Your, your uh, Dead to Me, the History podcast, they recently had a, a short section about eunuchs in the ancient world, and it was, thankfully, as I said, short, but it was nonetheless very, very gory. Um, and the idea of it, while obviously totally barbaric and totally sinful, is actually kind of simple and there's a logic to it. The idea is that if you, excuse me, if you castrate your civil servants, then they're less likely to be distracted by other pleasures in life or other responsibilities in life or by your harem. And they're more likely to commit themselves fully to the work for the king or the emperor or, or the queen in this case. And given that, it's likely that they had a certain physical appearance and a certain sound to their voice owing to the lack of testosterone in the body. Sorry to go into the details. You can find the podcast yourself if you want to know more. An Ethiopian eunuch walked into a service station. It, it kind of does sound like there's a punchline coming, doesn't it? And yet, that's what Luke gives us, three facts about this man. And let's face it, they're not the first three questions that anyone would ask if you met someone after church or at a party. Remember when we can do that? Yes, I might say, where are you from? I might say, what's your job? But I'd probably also say, what's your name? And I wouldn't necessarily ask about their surgical history. But here we are, that's what we're given, three facts about this man. Although in fact, we're actually given four facts. Luke also tells us that he'd been to Jerusalem to worship. And it's that, that last fact that sort of brings the others into focus, explains why he's told us those. This man loved God. In fact, he, he's still doing some Bible study as he travels. And although he's not Jewish, he's taken a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship God. So he has responded to the temple in exactly the way that Gentiles were always supposed to respond to the temple. 
he has seen that Israel's God is the true God. And he has travelled from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to come and worship him there. And yet, from the other details that we know about him, it is highly likely that his experience of worship in Jerusalem would have been deeply disappointing. It would have been completely underwhelming. In Jewish law, eunuchs were not allowed to enter the assembly of the Lord. So when he arrived at Jerusalem, he'd have been shut out of the temple. And things would have been no better outside the temple. Over the years, there were rules that were supposed to keep God's people distinct from the nations around them. To keep them holy because God is holy. But over the years, these had been warped into a sort of xenophobic nationalism. And we know something of the the cultural zeitgeist at this time because of Peter's words in two chapters time. In chapter 10, Peter says, You are well aware that it is against the law for a Jew to associate with or even visit a Gentile. So when an Ethiopian eunuch arrived in Jerusalem, he would have found a cold reception. He'd have found barriers preventing him from coming to God or from having fellowship with God's people. At the temple, he would find a closed door. And in the streets, he'd find faces turned away. His worship experience would have been socially distanced to the extreme. And yet, the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, is good news for this man too. God doesn't live in the temple in Jerusalem anymore. That was the point of Stephen's speech in the last chapter. And do you remember back to chapter 2? The pillar of fire that represents God's presence, his spirit, that's no longer resting over the temple, but rather it splits and rests over Jesus' followers. The church is the new temple. And rather than people coming to the church to worship God, Jesus' people are sent out to the world to bring the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection to the ends of the earth. And here is Philip, one of those people, doing just that, as he approaches a man who he would presumably previously have kept at arm's length. A man who's experienced barriers, preventing him from coming to God in the temple. But here, in the new temple... In the church, God comes to him. Now it seems Philip is slightly ahead of the curve on the rest of the church in bringing the gospel to to new and different people. We saw that last week in Samaria and we see it again here. But Philip is no maverick. He's not acting on his own initiative outside the will of the apostles or the rest of the church. No, Luke gives enough details in this passage to tell us that this meeting is not Philip-ordained, But God ordained. An angel tells him where to go. The spirit tells him who to speak to. And the same spirit whisks him away when the job is done. This conversation happens because God wants to reach this Ethiopian eunuch. Despite all the previous religious and cultural barriers that kept him from God and God's people, God wants to reach him. And Philip is sensitive to the Spirit's call. 
in the church, the Holy Spirit removes all the barriers that keep men from God. Which means that in the church, full fellowship is open to anyone who responds to Jesus with repentance and faith. I think it's to the Ethiopian's credit that despite his likely experience in Jerusalem, he, he's still reading scripture as he travels home. In fact, we know what he's reading because it's quoted. He's reading Isaiah 53. And as you look at that passage, it, it, it's a passage that I think would resonate with him. The protagonist of Isaiah 53 is a man who is despised and rejected. He's a man who people turn their faces from. His life is a story of injustice, of suffering, of pain, of mutilation. He's cut off in his prime. He has no descendants to speak of. Can you see why a eunuch would have a certain empathy for this man? Yet, the innocent servant in Isaiah 53, he seems willing to accept and even embrace this suffering and rejection as God's will. His afflictions aren't pointless. Isaiah says that in his suffering, he took our pain. He bore our punishment for our transgressions, our inequities, our rebellion, our rejection of God. He gave his life as an offering for our sin. And that brought us peace and healed our relationship with God. Now the Ethiopian, he's in, intrigued obviously by the protagonist of Isaiah 53. But he doesn't know who he is until Philip approached him. And yet, confounding all the cultural expectations, Philip does approach him. A man that is so different to him in his ethnicity, in his physicality, in, in his sexuality. A Jew who he'd expect not to associate with him, instead comes alongside him and reaches out to him. And do you see how, how simple Philip's questions are? I mean, essentially it's, what are you reading? And what do you make of it? And so, as the Ethiopian invites him to travel with him, Philip then explains what he makes of Isaiah 53 in the light of Jesus' death and resurrection. I love how Luke puts it so shortly. Wouldn't you love to know what that conversation sounded like? I guess he'd have to explain that Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He was rejected, he was afflicted, he was humiliated, crushed and killed. And his death was the punishment for our rebellion against God who created us and who hasn't stopped pursuing us. And God accepted Jesus' death and resurrection instead of ours as a punishment from our sin. And so in doing so, Jesus' death, it, it, it destroys the greatest of all the barriers that keeps men from God. That the sin that left us cast out from his presence and under his judgment. And because God raised Jesus from dead again, he's affirmed that the punishment is paid. It's no longer there. We can have full access to God because of Jesus. But Jesus' death and resurrection didn't just remove the, the barrier of sin that kept us from God. Actually, it, it removes all the barriers between man and God and between men and each other. 
were the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip to read on in Isaiah, they'd have come to Isaiah 56 in just a few chapters' time. And there they would read the hope that people just like this Ethiopian eunuch could have because of Jesus' death and resurrection. They'd have read these words. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, and keeps their hands from doing evil. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name that is better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and be his servants. All who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Do you see that the plan of Jesus wasn't just to, to die to destroy our sin, but to try to destroy all the barriers that kept men and this man in particular from God. Eunuchs and foreigners are welcomed in. Just a very quick side note there. Jesus' death and resurrection, this removal of the barriers between men and God, it doesn't mean that coming to God through Jesus means we don't have to change anything. In fact, Believing the gospel will always change us. It will change us for the better, and that change will be a lifelong process as the Spirit works in us. You see, we come to God through Jesus by repentance and faith. And repentance, it, it always necessitates change. It means to stop living for ourselves in the little kingdom where whatever I want is the most important, and instead to start living for Jesus for his kingdom and its priorities and its mission. The gospel, it, it will change us. But the invitation to come to Jesus, that's available for anyone, even an Ethiopian eunuch. There are no barriers. I've got to say, I don't know if Philip and the Ethiopian read on to Isaiah 56, but we do know that the Ethiopian, he understood this. He understood that the gospel, the good news that Jesus had removed these barriers, was for him. In fact, it, it seems that the good news was almost too good to be true for him. Look at his words. What can stand in the way of me being baptised, he said, when he saw water? You get the impression he's, he's expecting a catch, another barrier. But there is none. Nothing can stand in the way of his coming to Jesus in repentance and faith. This good news, it is for him. See, in the church, in the new temple, full fellowship is open to anyone who responds to Jesus with repentance and faith. Even, and starting with, an Ethiopian eunuch. 
And so he's baptised, the sign that he has joined Jesus' people. And he comes out of the water and Philip is whisked away to carry on the mission elsewhere. But this man travels on home rejoicing that through Jesus he is now a part of God's kingdom. I'm guessing his, his journey back to Ethiopia is a long one, but the gospel has just taken a much greater journey. A Gentile has come to faith for the first time and someone so utterly, conspicuously different from the up until now exclusively Jewish church in Jerusalem. And yet, do you see how undramatic it was? We're used to seeing signs and wonders in, in the Gospels and in Acts, and yet the Ethiopian sees none of those. Yes, there was an angelic satnav, and yes, the spirit told Philip who to speak to, but the Ethiopian wasn't privy from that to that. From his perspective, what he experienced was a man who he'd expect to shun him, instead approach him and reach out to him. What are you reading? What do you make of it? And that is how the Spirit tears down the barriers that keep men from God. The Spirit extends full fellowship to people outside the church when Jesus' people talk about Jesus. He does it when Jesus' followers approach people, when they come alongside them, when they reach out to them, and that's simple. I mean, I know Philip had an own goal here, an open goal here, the, the, the Ethiopians reading scripture, but we can do it with anything. What are you reading? What are you watching? What are you thinking about? What are you listening to? What do you talk about in the pub or in your coffee break or on your WhatsApp groups? And what do you make of it all? And then may I tell you how I understand it all in light of Jesus' death and resurrection. That's how the Spirit works, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's how he builds his church and, and that's a church that I want to be a part of and I'm thankful to be a part of. But I'm aware, and from the news reports this week, it seems clear that that is not everyone's experience of church. Sadly, lots of people still experience barriers when they come to God's people. Some of us put them up ourselves. Some of you can't believe that full fellowship and access to God is open to people like you. Some of you think the good news is for other people, but not for you. You may think there's something that you've done or that's been done to you or something about who you are, your, your race, your gender, your education, anything that means you can't come to God and you can't be a full part of his community of people. If that is you, if that is how you feel, let me assure you, this good news is for you. Come by repenting of whatever is keeping you on the outside and believe that Jesus' death and resurrection means that every sin is covered and every barrier has been ripped down. You can come to God and enjoy fellowship with his people. So if that is you, come in. We would love to get to know you. Fill in a I'm new form on our website. 
Stick around for a coffee, join the after church Zoom, come to a connect group, come to dis, um, exploring Christianity. We would love to get to know you, we'd love to get alongside you, we'd love to reach out to you and we would love to talk to you about Jesus. For some people though, the barriers, they haven't been put up by you, they, they've been put up by us. For some people, your experience is more like this man's experience in Jerusalem at the old temple. You've been told or you've been made to feel that you are not welcome here in this church or in the church generally. You've been made to feel that this community is for people like us and, and not for people like you. You've been made to feel that you'll never be one of us. If anyone has been made to feel that way, then I am truly and deeply sorry. That is not what church should feel like or be like. Please forgive us and please give us another chance to get to know you, to understand you, to, to enjoy fellowship with you and to let you experience both the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection and the fellowship of his people that is available to everyone. And if we as the church have made anyone feel that way, then we need to repent. We need to realign ourselves with the Spirit's mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to all types of people, because all the barriers that keep men from God have been destroyed in Jesus. Because full fellowship is available to anyone who comes to him with repentance and faith. That's the church that I want to be a part of. And, and as I think about it, it's a church that, well, I think it looks something like this. An Englishman and an Irishman, and a Scotsman, and a rabbi, and a priest, and an Imran, and a monk, and a hell's angel, and a lawyer, and a hippie, and a banker, and yes, even an Ethiopian eunuch. They all came in, no, they were all approached by the church. The Holy Spirit took one look at them and said, repent, and believe in Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins. And they were all baptised, and they all came into fellowship together. That's what church should look like. And that is how the Holy Spirit is building his church. So if you are on the outside, come in. This is for you. And if you're on the inside, go out to those on the outside. Get alongside them. Reach out to them. Talk to them about Jesus, who's removed all the barriers between men and God. And who welcomes us all into fellowship with him and with each other by his spirit. Why don't I pray that we will do that? Heavenly Father, it is both great to see your gospel spreading to new types of people in this passage and to know that that's going on even today. And yet it's humbling to see how we resist your spirit's work in doing that. Please forgive us and please give us hearts to truly believe that Jesus has removed all the barriers between men and God, that this gospel message is for everyone. And please give us courage and faith to align ourselves with your Spirit's mission, to reach out to people who aren't like us, and to talk to them about Jesus. Amen. <laughs>